Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy. If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's my pleasure to lead us uh, through chapter 4 this morning. If you don't have your copy of God's Word with you, uh, the passage will be on the screen as, uh, at the same time as I read it. Uh, but I would encourage you to have it open. Maybe you'll circle something, maybe underline something that sticks out to you. I was away last week officiating a marriage in southern, southern Oregon. It was the first time that I had been to the Pacific Northwest and it was a beautiful, beautiful venue. The setting, stunning setting. The service was outdoors, which is always a little bit risky, right? Um, I had a, a, a marriage ceremony this summer that had a rain delay of an hour, uh, but this uh, marriage uh, ceremony was, was just stunning, stunning setting. It was a beautiful setting in a vineyard, no less, which is apropos as Christ performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, turning water into wine. So I, th I thought the vineyard was a fitting, uh, fitting place to celebrate. The uh, vineyard was in the Rogue Valley, which was surrounded by the Cascade Mountains in just a gorgeous place. God's beauty was on display, as well as his gift in matrimony. And so I share all this because marriage is addressed in today's passage. In fact, it's not just marriage, it's the fact that some are forbidding marriage, prohibiting marriage, in saying it's, it's factually a step of righteousness if you not get married, and you shouldn't get married, they were saying. And Paul tells Pastor Timothy in the ancient city of Ephesus to stand down those false teachers. Let me read for us the first six verses. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. I wonder when it comes to the curriculum of our life, <clears throat> who's fueling the curriculum? Who's written the curriculum? This stands out to me. Demons have a curriculum. Deceiving spirits have a curriculum that they're trying to proliferate in the world. Paul goes on, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, everything, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters there in Ephesus, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of faith and of good teaching that you have followed. We want to be nourished this morning, don't we, in the truths of the faith? Timothy served as the pastor of the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. This is our sixth sermon in a series. Paul wrote this letter to offer his wisdom on how Timothy could most effectively minister in what was a thoroughly secular environment. If you've been with us throughout the series, you've seen these pictures before. I've flown them before. Bottom center is the ancient or 
a rendering of the ancient temple of Artemis. Uh, Artemis, uh, uh, this temple is this, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. On, on scale, you should picture in your mind's eye something like Soldier Field, ginormous. Uh, top right is a statue of the goddess Artemis, goddess of fertility. And things that went on in the temple uh, matched her, her area of purview, that is, fertility rites went on in the temple. And then top left is a, uh, an emblem, something you'd buy in the marketplace uh, to conjure evil spirits. A thoroughly secular environment, a place not easy to live out the faith, to grow a church, Commercialism, as a port city, Ephesus was on the Aegean Sea. Commercialism fueled materialism, occult practices such as witchcraft, conjuring the dead, trying to speak with the dead, casting spells were commonplace. Not to mention ritual prostitution there in the temple of Artemis. All types of demonic activities in the city and debauchery. In this context, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, his specific instructions are for Timothy to teach sound doctrine. How will you survive in a thoroughly secular environment? Paul says, teach sound doctrine. Timothy's instructions were to stand down false teachers. To date, in the first three chapters, we've covered these topics. He was to correct the congregation's devotion to myths and endless genealogies. These were basically false histories aimed at pumping up individual and collective ego. Ancient mythology, Greek, uh, Roman uh, mythology of the gods were false histories, and then families would want to tie their story into the line of these ancient myths. They would misuse the Old Testament. He said in chapter 1, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know how to teach it and how it's best to be used. So he wanted to correct them there. Encouraging the congregation's prayerfulness in all matters. It's a theme that is raised again in today's passage. Gentleness and kindness between the men. Modesty among the women. Orderliness in male-female relationships. Selection of qualified leaders. That was last week's sermon. He closes chapter 3 with this directive, although I hope to come to you soon, he's gallivanting around the Mediterranean world, Timothy is in Ephesus, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, if I don't get there soon, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which isn't the building, but the community, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of truth in the world. How will Christians go from drowning in secular culture to living lives of increased freedom and joy? How will we flourish? How can Christians thrive in a, in a culture that's not terribly dissimilar to that of ancient Ephesus? I mean, two millennia later, the words that we're going to consider today are very applicable. They're right at the heart of what we're hearing from the broader world on how we're to live. Paul's answer to these questions, how are we going to thrive? How will we know the most joy and freedom? How will Christians flourish? The answer is by teaching sound doctrine. And someone might ask, well, is teaching sound doctrine all there is to it? And no, it's not. But it's, it's an essential element 
of our joy and freedom. Embracing and knowing what is true. I would like to say sound doctrine is necessary but not sufficient. That's not all there is to it. And before the end, I'll, I'll put a close on it. Sound doctrine is an essential ingredient, though, and one that's always and everywhere under attack. And Paul pulls back the curtain, so to speak, and reveals what's going on behind the scenes in kind of a, a strange, otherworldly reality. The Spirit clearly says, so Paul's hearing from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Such teachings come to us through hypocritical liars who've lost their conscience, their soul has been seared. Make no mistake, when false teaching makes its way into my life, our lives, our families, the church, for that matter, the broader community, when, when people, whoever they are, Christ followers or not, buy into false teachings, unsound doctrine, it's really clear. Deceiving spirits are behind those teachings. They're being led astray by demonic powers, which I know sounds weird otherworldly. The notion that there's an active, personified evil at work in the world can sound weird to us, but Scripture's really clear on it. We have a real enemy looking to steal our joy and freedom that God longs to give us. Christ said, I've come that you might have life and life to the full, flourishing life. Paul gives a couple of examples of the demonic teaching that's making its way around Ephesus there and, frankly, around the Mediterranean world. Verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It's interesting to me, and I, it's worth pointing out, that Matthew 19, Jesus says it directly. He talks about marriage and how it was designed by God, but Paul reiterates here, that they're forbidding people to marry and to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received from thanks, for thanksgiving or with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, God designed marriage and it's good. Everything God created is good. Nothing's to be rejected. And on the podcast tomorrow, we'll talk a little bit about what's he mean when he says everything God created is good and how do we hold intention not abusing the gifts of God. And he gives us some directions here. Most scholars believe these false teachers were Gnostics. It's not imperative that you know about Gnosticism. But Gnosticism was a first century worldview which taught that the material world was evil. And that abstaining from certain physical experiences, namely marriage and certain foods, would ready you to experience divine gnosis. Gnosis is simply knowledge. And so there was this attack on the material world or a labeling it as bad when Paul wants us to know everything God created is good and to be enjoyed, embraced, if received with thanksgiving. Because he says it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. What does it mean to consecrate something? 
by the word of God in prayer. Consecration means simply to set someone or something apart. Kings in the Old Testament were consecrated. Priests were consecrated, which simply means they were usually anointed and identified for special service in redemptive history. In the nation of Israel, kings, right, they adjudicated, they watched out, they protected the borders for this chosen nation through whom the Messiah would come. Priests would administer the rites of sacrifice so that the forgiveness of sin could be mediated. So they were anointed, they were consecrated, they were set apart for special service. The word savior means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. Another way to say it is he's the consecrated one. To be anointed is to be set apart for special purposes. Jesus was set apart for the special purpose of living a sinless life dying a sacrificial death, and being raised victorious over the grave so that we can celebrate the forgiveness that he's purchased and provided for us. So that's what consecration means. Paul says there's three elements to consecration when it comes to the created order and and receiving what God's created as good. The first is gratitude expressed to God as creator. It's a recognition that I didn't create these things, This wasn't my idea. I didn't choose to be born. Life is a gift. God's provided it to us. And all the blessings in life are are from God for us to enjoy. And so there's this expression of gratitude, which is a recognition that he's the creator. And we receive it open-handedly, not with closed fists, locked down, posture being, I'll do what I want with these gifts. I'll do what I want with my money. I'll do what I want with my intellect. I'll do what I want with my relationships. But gratitude's this expression of, no, I'm a steward. I've received the gifts. I'll use them as he's designed. I'll use them uh, on loan, you might say. C.S. Lewis, a 20th century Oxford professor, um, who was an atheist for most of his life, Uh, then came to faith in Jesus later in life. He said the worst part about being an atheist is you have no one to say thanks to. Right? We we giggle about it because it it occurs to us that, well, that's a fairly empty existence where you never get to express gratitude. Paul's clear here. The expression of gratitude is the first step towards utilizing what we've received, our lives, from God, utilizing them in a way that brings us the most joy and freedom. Secondly, the work of consecration includes a submission to God's word. He says, because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer, which means we look to scripture for direction on how to properly use what's been created, what we've received as gifts. We set apart the things we've received. Let's take money, for example. The monies, the possessions that we've received as stewards, we set them apart. We consecrate them for God's glory and our enjoyment as we look to the word of God for how to use them, how to utilize them. God's word gives us instructions on how to best use our monies, our possessions, for the most joy. It gives us instructions as well on our relationships, how to, how to be in relationship and care for each other and respond to one another. And as we look to God's word, we know the most joy, we flourish, we have the most freedom. 
A lie of the world is when you, when you use your life to do what you want with it, then that's when you know the most freedom. But the truth is, as we receive it in gratitude, look to God's instructions on how to utilize the blessings, I think of our bodies. We can abuse our bodies or we can submit to God as revealed in his word and enjoy our bodies as designed. Finally, in consecration, setting something apart, we must have a posture of prayer. An ongoing posture, seeking his direction, his discernment. So we receive with thanksgiving, we go to his word for instruction on how to utilize this blessing, whatever it might be, our intellect, our bodies, our relationships, our possessions, and then we live a life of prayer, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading. That's a part of Brittany's story up here. Right? A sensitivity, trying to discern, should I stay in the legal field? A vocation that's, as she said, admirable. Or is there something else that God has for me? And she says she goes to, the, she quoted Titus in a season of fasting and seeking God's will, this posture of prayer. That's how we consecrate. That's how we know the most joy and freedom as we uh, receive the gifts that he's given us. Interestingly, a friend forwarded to me a Wall Street Journal article that was printed Tuesday. I received it on Wednesday from my friend, the title of which was Why Middle-Aged Americans Aren't Going Back to Church. The article explores the declining post-COVID church attendance among folks in their 40s and 50s. I find this interesting that the Wall Street Journal is, is doing this article. That's interesting to me. But what was most fascinating was a quote from a 41-year-old male who explained the la his lack of church attendance simply by saying, I'm not interested in hearing those sermons. There was an any more quality to his exasperation. I'm not interested in hearing those sermons anymore. Which sermons are those sermons? Well, the 41-year-old explained that the specific topics he was no longer interested in hearing about had to do with God's design on sexuality and marriage. How we use our bodies and relate to one another in covenant. Marriage is a, a legally binding covenant. He wasn't interested in hearing uh, a pastor's opinion on that or uh, perceivably from the word of God anymore on that. Folks, no one's prohibiting marriage in the 21st century like they were in the first century. But many are redefining marriage, and some are even labeling it as restrictive and oppressive. In other words, not in our best interest for human flourishing. And those views are making their way into Christians' lives. Many, many Christians are having a hard time navigating the contra-biblical messages on sexuality in marriage, which I will go so far as saying are promulgated by deceiving spirits and demonic activity. In today's passage, Paul's really clear. God created marriage. He has a design for it. Given to humanity as a blessing to be received with thankfulness in submission to the word of God and an ongoing posture of prayer. And when we redefine marriage, 
or when we label it as restrictive and oppressive, contrary to human flourishing, we do humanity a disservice. Which isn't to say that everybody needs to get married. Read 1 Corinthians 7. Not everybody's to get married. But humanity received marriage as a gift. It's the bedrock, in many respects, of social order. In fact, one of the most fascinating books I've read in the last 12 months is titled The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. As you might guess from the title, the author traces the negative impact that the so-called women's liberation movement has had upon women specifically and society generally. In a voice that is uber-compassionate towards women, and thoroughly researched. The author details how a culture of increasing promiscuity since the 1960s, in which consent is virtually the only and certainly the highest ethic in secular culture. Well, we're two consenting adults. Oh, well then do whatever you want. Consent being the highest sexual ethic has led to the abuse of people with women bearing the brunt of the blows. And if this book had been written by a pastor or a Christian even, no one would have probably batted an eye. It's exactly what you would expect to hear from a pulpit, per se. But this book was written by a non-Christian, and a self-described feminist. Raised in a liberal home, Louise Perry was a poster child, she says, for radical feminism, until she began serving in a rape crisis center and observing firsthand the downstream realities of a culture that celebrates pornography as freedom of speech. As a British journalist, she writes with unabashed passion about how ditching the traditional sexual ethic, what we would call the historic biblical ethic, of one man and one woman for life has not served society well. In fact, the last chapter of her book is titled, Marriage is Good. I see some of you giggling. Let me tell you a funny story she recounts, because in a minute I'm going to offer a warning on purchasing this book. <laughs> Towards the end of the book, she describes consent ceremonies, because consent in the popular culture is the highest ethic. And she talks about how consent is unraveled, and there are some, in our litigious realities, people are getting sued. Well, you consented to that relationship or that experience, a one-night stand most often, and the other person said, I didn't consent to that, and you forced me, yourself upon me, and so there was an unraveling of, well, how do we solidify consent? How do we concretize consent if that's the highest ethic? And she says, well, what the secular world has taken to do is having consent parties where they sign papers, hold them up, and take selfies together, both having signed copies. Sounds interesting, right? She says these consent ceremonies have blossomed into inviting friends 
to witness the consensuality, the signing. There's a party, there's a cake. Is this sounding familiar to anybody? It's marriage. It's like they've backed into it. How do we get this done? Uh, we want to do whatever we want, but it's not working out for us really the best we can know how. So how can we, and they've worked themselves right back into a marriage ceremony where papers are signed and pictures are taken and folks celebrate with them, friends and family. And the insanity of it all. Chronological snobbery. It's the view that we know more today than they could have possibly known back then. C.S. Lewis talks about it. It's, the, it's this rich hubris pride that, well, I'm younger than you, so I know more than they knew about what is best for society. Here's the warning. I'm afraid uh, that some in reading this book might be triggered. If you've struggled with sexual addiction, it might not be the book for you. Uh, Sherry had trouble making her way through it. It's a rough read because it's a hellish reality out there. So be warned, it's emotionally difficult to read this book. Um, it reveals, and I, I choose this word, in grave detail, the damage done in popular culture um, by the lies about what is best for us regarding sex and marriage. So buyer beware. If you can handle it, and you'll know in the first chapter if you're up for it, it's a eye-opening, terrifying, um, change your habits on social media, cancel cable type reading. Um, so it's, anyway, sobering. All right, so what's the remedy? Is it simple, is it as simple as uh, sound doctrine? I said earlier that sound doctrine is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, it's not as simple as gathering weekly and hearing sound doctrine by God's grace, right? Um, we'll hear sound doctrine from this pulpit. And we'll hear sound doctrine in our homes and in our small groups. But if you've been without me, with us throughout this series, you, you'll, you've heard us re say repeatedly, godly leadership conforms to the gospel in both position and posture. So there's position, there's belief, there's doctrine. But there's also a necessary posture, that is behavior, what I want to call discipline. So in summary, I would say something like, um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. There must be mental assent to biblical truth, sound doctrine, but there, there must, you know, marriage is good, pornography bad, but there also must be this, this active engagement of our bodies to live in a way in accordance with or in line with the sound doctrine. We must have a posture that says, yes, marriage is good, and live that out. Doesn't mean we have to get married, but we need to affirm it and celebrate it and stay away from things that undermine it. So let me finish the chapter, 1 Timothy 4, beginning in 7. 
have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. So he's back on to what we think, doctrine, uh, beliefs, position. Rather, train yourself. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godly training, training in godliness, has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Training is valuable in godliness. That's why we labor and strive. That's why we work so hard, Paul says, because we've put our hope in the living God who's the Savior for all people, and especially of those who believe commanded teach these things don't let anyone look down on you because you're young but set an example for the believers in speech in conduct in love in faith in purity so there's a concrete acting out what you believe in speech in conduct in love in faith in purity do this until i come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and teaching don't neglect the gift which was given to you in other words find a place to serve there's a Opportunity to sign up for service after this in Rathbun Hall in our children's ministry. Don't neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. We need to see each other's progress, not just hear mental assent. I need to be able to look at your life, and frankly, it's terribly encouraging to look at your lives and see you making progress in your faith, see you enduring and persevering. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. It's not enough to just watch our doctrine closely. It has to work itself out. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your listeners. What we believe matters. It's our belief in Christ and his behavior, mind you, not just that he's the son of God, that affirmation's true, but that he lived a sinless life, died a physical death, hung on a cross, and then was raised physically three days later. This physicality, Christ accomplished something physically. It shouldn't be lost on us. Christ came bodily. It shouldn't be lost on us. God gave us bodies. And with these bodies, we, we not simply give mental assent to the truth, we live out the truth. Here's my summary. Doctrine and discipline are both essential in discipleship. By discipline, I mean training. Physically engaging your mind and your body as followers of Jesus. Train yourself to be godly. Man, I would circle that, underline it, memorize it. How are you doing at training? Are you setting an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity? Or would people be surprised to even know that you're a Christian? Are you devoting yourself to the public reading of Scripture? Well done, you're here this morning, that's awesome. Are you devoted to it in your home? Is the Word of God opened in your home? Is the, is the Word of God opened in your, in your closest friendships? In your small groups? Post-COVID, the average evangelical makes it to church 1.7 times a month. I look around the room and I see a lot of above-average people, which I'm really thankful for. But we're going to have trouble flourishing 
knowing the joy and the freedom that is ours in Christ if we're only here 1.7 times a month? Are you cultivating your gifts? Are you serving? Do you have a place where others are, are blessed by you providing support and encouragement and cheering people on? Are you watching your life and your doctrine closely? Paul in 1 Corinthians says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. The World Cup folks, they didn't just show up there one day and say, I'm going to give this a try. No, they devoted themselves to it. Paul says they do it to get a crown that'll not last. We do it to get a crown that'll last forever. This training's going to pay off. Therefore, he says, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I wonder, it's a valuable question to ask, are we aimless in our faith? Or are we intentional? I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I'm very intentional at what I take aim at physically. I beat my body, I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I'll not be disqualified. Brittany talked about fasting, an invaluable discipline for those in a suburban setting because we're physically telling our bodies no. When suburbia is all about more, it's consumptive. More convenience, more control, and fasting is, for rich people like us, fasting is really important because we tell ourselves no so that we can listen better, so that we can hear, so it shuts out the noise. Some of us get discouraged when prayer is awkward, but many of us are only praying once a day, once a week. Again, no need for a show of hands, but how many of us have gone to prayer in a group of Christians and there's that awkward, stunned silence that no one's praying and we think to ourselves, well, it's reverent. And I think, no, we're just not very prayerful. It's go time. Let's pray. He knows what we need before we ask. Let's open our mouths. Let's go at it. Some of us, <laughs> I love this analogy, um, some of us pray like, you know, if you work out only once a week, you work out just enough to stay perpetually sore. But if you work out two or three or four times a week, you get past the soreness. It's the same with prayer. If you only pray every now and then, it's going to be perpetually awkward when you're praying with other people. Let's be the people that when we get together and it's go time, it's time to talk to our father together. He's like, okay, not all at once. Good, good, yeah, what? Man, he just, he, he, we, let's come at him. Some of us can't imagine reading through the Bible cover to cover in a year, an achievement that takes uh, a 30-minute commitment daily, on average, depending on your rate of reading. We can't imagine doing that because we haven't spent four minutes a day in the Bible or five minutes a day. Some of us can't imagine giving 10% of our income to kingdom things, kingdom purposes. But that's because we're not giving 1% or 2% or 3%. Some of us haven't done the math to figure out whether or not we're going to give God a raise next year. Oh, God, how'd you do? Well, last year I gave 4%. You did pretty good last year. God, I, I'll give you 4.3. I know, I'm kind of snarky. We need to do the math. How are we going to grow in the grace of giving if 
We have no clue what we gave last year or what we gave last month, and we're not intentional about it. How will we know what sacrifice is in giving? Unless we do the math and figure out the pain of it. Some of us can't imagine leading someone to Christ because we never talk about our faith. We're going to close with a song in a minute. I'm deeply convinced that singing together, learning to open our mouths and make noise about our faith is a great training for evangelism. I'd go so far as to say churches that sing loudly and passionately see conversions. Because the training for sharing your faith is figuring out, okay, I sing horrible, uh, but I'm going to light it up. I mean, if you can't sing loudly here, where we're all gathered to sing about Jesus, how will you ever share your faith out there? How will you ever open your mouth out there when you're alone at work? Am I crazy? No, I'm just ornery. All right. The same one who said, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. That's our Savior. He also said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Here's the point to be had. We think life and life to the full is the suburban dream of comfort and convenience. And he's telling us no. Life and life to the full is a cross-carrying activity. It's the engagement of the body. We took physical elements today, little juice, little bread, the physicality of it. I like to sing with my arms up. You ever read screw tape letters? It's a hard book to read. C.S. Lewis said it was the, the hardest book he ever wrote. It's a dialogue, it's fictitious, between an, an over a demon who has charge of a, a lesser demon, and the older demon is, uh, the, the demon in authority is coaching the lesser demon on what to do because the person he's been given charge of just converted to Christ. And the overseeing demon says to the younger de- demon, whatever happens when he goes to prayer, make sure his head is on his pillow because then we're sure his, his prayer will be short. What we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters in worship, opening our mouths, taking communion elements. What we do with our bodies matters sexually. What we do with our bodies matters keenly and it most clearly seen through Jesus. He didn't die mythically. He, he, it's not just simply, he actually suffered bodily. He won spiritual victory for us by suffering bodily. And so the same is true for us. We don't provide our salvation by suffering bodily. No, we know the joy and freedom that's been provided to us through his bodily suffering by similarly engaging our bodies by picking up our cross and carrying it. Train yourselves in godliness if you want to know more joy and freedom. All right, y'all stand. I'll pray. Let's sing one more song. Yeah. Bow your head with me. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us bodily. Thank you for the health 
that we had to be here this morning among believers. Help us to open our mouths. Help us to engage physically. Help us to train. Help us to, to pick something to go at this week. Help it to be less awkward when we pray. Father, um, we love you so. We're so thankful for your grace towards us when we fall short. That there's nothing we can do to make you love us more or make you love us less. Thank you that we're perfectly loved in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.